You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. So this should be just automatic feel-good place, huh? Water here, water there, and water everywhere. So here we are on Sydney Harbour at Willamaloo. Um, This is where the Navy docks are. And, you know, this water is what draws so many people to Sydney. It is today rather blue, a little bit green because of the rain clouds overhead. And like usual, it's pretty difficult to see what's under the water. Um, Just last year, a couple of Navy divers, in fact, pulled up some bombs that um, had been found on the, sitting in the silts of the harbor. They were unexploded. They didn't really pose any danger. But I think it sort of created the sensation um, in that particular media story, like what? Bombs in the places we work, live and play? Um, quite spectacular. But actually when we think about it, water, this water in particular, harbors a lot of military leftovers that you know seep into our everyday lives. Just a little bit further down, if we hopped on a ferry, we'd get to Parramatta, along the Parramatta River rather, you know, if we wound up at Rhodes, now you see shopping malls and parks and, you know, Sydney Olympic Park. But that was the site um, where Dow Chemical uh, used to have its chemical manufacturing plant um, where they made Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. And, you know, sediment uh, of the Parramatta River and the harbour still holds the residues of those chemical weapons. Um, so, you know, in many ways, war keeps coming back to us, you know, brought in by the tides in noticeable but more often unnoticed ways. Militarisms are all around us, but they're often hidden, not in the sense that we can't see them or smell them or touch them, but in the sense that we don't notice them. They're hidden in plain sight. They're there if we choose to pay attention to them. But many of the structures, the political and environmental and social structures and cultural structures of our everyday lives, encourage us not to pay attention to them, to not see or smell or touch what is right in front of us. Everyday militarisms is a concept that lets us understand the ways in which military technologies or knowledges or events filter through the most banal and everyday aspects of our common existences. Hi, I'm Tess Lee. I'm an anthropologist who works in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies. And amongst other things, I work on this concept of everyday militarisms. 
My name's Estrita Namanis. I also work in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies, but usually around questions of uh, environmental pollution and multi-species relationships, often from a feminist perspective. Um, Tess and I came together a few years ago and discovered we had a common interest in militarisms. It was something that was not overt in either of our work, but for both of us, it was kind of the elephant in the room. Everything that we were thinking and writing about somehow connected back to militarisms, and that's what connected us to each other as well. My name is Jimmy Smith. I am uh, a Wiradjuri Koori from a Rambi mission outside the town of Cowra. I am a cultural educator, and um, these are some of my views on militarism. What are everyday militarisms? Militarisms are all around us in cell phone technologies, transportation corridors, prisons, uh, globalization of certain kinds of foods that we eat. Uh, but we don't often recognize these things as part of uh, militarized knowledge or militarized systems per se. And so this is what we mean by um, saying that militarisms are hidden in plain sight. They're everywhere around us but we often don't take notice of them. And in many situations, so like in academic research, but also in the news, I think, we often treat war as something that's separate, like it's over there, it was back then, it's happening somewhere else, it's a historical artifact, it's an event. But the idea of everyday militarisms is a way to think about how militarization filters through all aspects of our everyday lives. I think that what it does is enable us to think more flexibly and in more nuanced ways about the operations of power. Uh, when we start to say with something like climate change, which is so omnipresent and yet overwhelming, it's really hard to think your way through a thing. And what this gives is a form of what I would call probative analytics, which is just a fancy way of saying a set of lenses to try on um, and keep trying until something refracts into some clarity for you um, about what are our conditions of existence and how do they come to be such that they are. So how did we swivel from being people who could feed ourselves to being people who don't have the first clue or capacity to be able to do so on a self-sustaining basis? How did we swivel from being people who would know our neighbours intimately across generations to being in the company permanently of strangers? So these massive conditions of existence can be analysed and brought into some kind of focus by thinking through some of its um, subtending architectures, some of its enabling devices. That's what everyday militarisms enables. So Sydney Harbour is also directly adjacent to the Botanical Gardens, which we can look at as a colonial enterprise in so many ways. But somebody like Uncle Jimmy 
also introduces us to the fact that hidden in plain sight here are not only these military histories and logics, but an abundance of deep knowledge, of deep connection to noticing that is in excess of the militarization that structures our everyday lives. Well, I see we're surrounded by a lot of gaddy plants here, these um, grass trees, eh? And gaddy is um, the name of the people, Gadigal people. So Gadigal people are people of the grass tree. Eh? And beautiful Australiana. It's all around us here. We've got some Dianella over here, produces um, edible purple berries. Lamandra over there, which is um, good for bread. Um, you can use the seeds off it, make bread. And Pasco's even saying that curries made bread before the Egyptians. Seems to be in the, the bigger understanding of the world that bread came out of the, of the Middle East. But they overlook curries altogether through ignorance, through racism, through a whole bunch of things. But um, the Lamandra, it's an awesome plant and it is abundant all over. Um, like I said, the seeds are ground up to make a flower. There's a grinding stone right behind me here. So uh, it's very... Um, yeah. Can you describe what it looks like, the grinding stone? It's, uh, it's, a piece of, it's a block of sandstone. It has a, um, a small dip in it where curries um, grind uh, with another harder rock on that. And um, then you make the flour out of that. You, it's also used for a whole bunch of other things as well. Grinding ochre. Um, but back to the lamandra it's uh, it's used none of it is wasted the leaves are long and they're very very strong just like the the leaf of the of the grass trees very very strong and they're used for weaving uh, so that becomes a, a big part of uh, Koori people's world is weaving not many people have that skill today which is uh, very unfortunate uh, so yeah. So we're, we're in the botanical gardens here and there are lots of people walking around us. Do you think that the people walking by have any knowledge of these things that you've just told us about? Probably not. Um, there's a lot of signage around, but in my experience people don't like to read signage. They want someone to come and tell them, you know, uh, give them a, a, a hands-on feel the leaf like uh, like we do when we go on, on bush walks. Uh, we talk about the bush foods and, and the bush medicines. Um, big tea tree just there. Tea tree oil comes from it. I, I think the bulk of the people can't put that one together. That, and here, these look like ghost gums, uh, eucalypts. So, and eucalyptus oil comes from them as well. There's over 60 varieties of eucalypts in the country and there's, there's a few here in the gardens, but um, whether people can put the two and two together, that 
tea tree oil comes out of these trees over here and the eucalyptus oil comes out of these trees over here. So, uh, yeah, I guess people, even in the gardens, they're more consumed with the chi of peace and clean air. Um, and that makes sense to me too. Yeah. Being so close to the CBD, people need quality air and to be in this kind of environment. So it's quite peaceful here. It I, is. Would, would, would you look around yourself and describe this as a militarized place? Um, I don't know whether this, maybe at some stage in, in its evolution it was militarized because just over there is, you could hit a golf ball that far and you'd hit uh, Garden Island. So that's the, the, the naval base here in Sydney. Um, a bit further over the, around the other side of Middlehead, there's a, uh, a naval, um, not so much a base, but it's a naval um, training place. There's not many ships there. They're all over here at Garden Island. But the whole harbour um, from the early days of colonisers um, coming in, they militarised it right through and it's only that that Australia realised that it's not that big a military power in the bigger scheme of things that they started to ease off and move their their navy down to, to Jarvis Bay, um, Adelaide and Perth but uh, this is where it began here here in Sydney in, in, the, in and around the harbour here. Huge, big magazine stores further down river. Um, saw part of it. Um, so yeah. How would you compare the sort of the pharmaceuticals that you're pointing to in these trees and grasses with the pharmaceutical? Oh, these are natural uh, medicines. These are bush medicines. I would hope that there's no chemicals around the place and. Uh, you would think that that would be part of the botanical gardens uh, brief is to keep chemicals and pesticides out of the gardens and make it as natural as possible. So, uh, yeah. And pre-European, everything was pure. There was no pollution. Eh? Now the harbour is polluted from military and from so much harbour traffic. Eh? Um, so yeah, it was very pure, pre-European. So as we're sitting here talking about the indigenous knowledges materially present in these gardens, we also look just over our shoulder to see Garden Island, the naval base, just over there. How do we connect these things? How do we inhabit this place where this thing could exist unnoticed, covert, at the same time as that thing, that military naval ship exists again in plain sight, but with meanings and significances that are very hidden to the everyday person. So um, now we're a bit closer to the water. Um, we were thinking about uh, things like um, pollution. You know, it, again, it looks so peaceful, blue mm. water, mm. beautiful mm. tourism. Mm. 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 
tourist attraction. When yep. you look at the water, what, it, what does it bring to mind? Well, that you wouldn't eat anything out of that water. <laughs> there's a lot of oysters there, there's a lot of fish in there, and you wouldn't eat any of it. You know, whereas, prior, again, prior to the British, central to life. All from here, every river, you know, George's River, Takarawa, um, up to the Hawkesbury. These are lifelines for people across the planet. All, all harbours and all rivers are. So it's so important they stay clean. Right? And militarism, everything, they seem to get first pick of inventions and new things that can be turned into um, weapons of, of aggression. Uh, they usually talk about that they're used for defence, but it's probably not quite the case. Whereas militarism dominates the planet, whether we like it or whether we don't, whether we see it and whether we can't see it. But it's here. It's all around us. We just don't know it. Unless somebody comes along and says, oh, it was, it was used as uh, that fort out there was um, as a deterrent from invasion. Because one of the things about colonialism is fear, eh? and they use it on their own people, and they they have it them, themselves in big doses of fear uh, that somebody is coming, is going to come along and take what they've taken. So uh, agro and fear are never far apart, eh? which is really unfortunate. There's no stability in that at all, and that kind of means there's no balance. So you have no balance with the environment. What you want is a military base. And uh, I said a little bit earlier about Okinawa, about Pearl Harbor, um, San Diego, all on big harbors. Right? And just as important, everything suffers as a result of that military base being there. So, so maybe some people would say, well, you know, Sydney is not Okinawa, it's mm. not mm. Honolulu. That's so, right. I mean, right. do, does Sydney Harbour suffer from the effects of militarism? Sure. In the Second World War, there was two Japanese submarines came in and uh, one of them fired a, a torpedo and I think, I don't know, 46 people might have died. Uh, so... It was obviously during the Second World War, but uh, <laughs> the one of the aggressors walked right into the into the front yard, yeah, and sailed in, however it came in under the water, however you want to say it, but that's what happened. So it made Sydney a target. And um, as I was talking about earlier, you know, there's cannons all around the harbour, uh, and people just see them as a at the time bygone era, but in that bygone era, it was about aggression and hanging on to what they had taken. And just important, what was going on amongst European countries at that time, they were all grabbing um, lands that didn't belong to, belong to them. They all took them through aggression. None of it was ever negotiated. It was all taken through agro. So, so maybe, I mean, I would guess that a lot of white fellows in Australia would be thinking, well, that was in the past. Like, those military mm. conquests, those military aggressions, that was a long time ago. Mm. We don't, like, now we live in a time of peace and stability, and militarism doesn't affect us anymore. We're not at war. What, w what would you say to that? I'd say, yeah, if they wage war on us, and they're still killing First Nations people. 
So, and Iraq, it's not that long ago, and now they're ironing off Iran. So, you know, it is still here. And it's always um, headlines in the news. So it is definitely here. And it's the way that the media put it across, is that whatever country that they're invading, be it Iraq, be it Iran, uh, that they're the bad guys. And uh, the West are the good guys. You couldn't be further from the truth. There's no one more aggressive than the West. Um, you're still killing First Nations people, your first statement there. Um, how would you... How does that belong to a militarised way of being? The, the Northern Territory intervention. John Howard used the military to go in to, to use the military against First Nations people. There's no other um, Australian community who's had the Australian military moved against them. Australia is a nation that is under continuing occupation. It operates pretty much on the basis of stolen property. That stolen property is the unfinished business of the nation state. In order to try and secure itself, the nation state, that is Australia, tries to resist and negate the prior sovereignty of Indigenous people at all moments and in all ways. It's an ongoing project, it's an ongoing cultural process, and it is definitely tethered by militarised relations. So the project of what some scholars would call counter-sovereignty, i.e. the state constantly trying to rationalise and legitimate a claim that is in fact unsettled business and still contested, that that project of counter-sovereignty is enabled and is overwhelming and very overpowering because people know that a baton and uh, a tank don't sit very far behind the contracts and the benevolent relations and the grants and the gifts. It also goes beyond that. It's like infrastructures are with us all the time. Militarisms are with us all the time, directing where we walk, how we walk, that there is concrete to walk upon. Uh, the water that we access, the, the waste that we send away, the shelters that we are in, how we access the energy to sustain our dense settlements without the capacity for any of us to actually be self-sufficient, the trade routes that we depend upon for goods and services, the notion of even a trade route, a route, is a wall, it's a defended passageway that has histories and densities and uh, a whole lot of wrangling about uh, territory over time. So militarism, either in the present moment or in the past, catches us analytically and challenges us to think about what are we situated in, how do we actually exist. So it's not just the toggle between invisibility and visibility that should capture our imagination in relationship to everyday militarisms. 
It's also because militarisms work invisibly, culturally and structurally. They follow all of the divisions of inequality, whether you're thinking about it from a gender point of view, a race point of view, a sexuality point of view, another species, ecological, colonial point of view. Militarisms saturate each and every one of those striations. My interest in this first peaked when I wrote a book on Darwin. It became really clear to me, digging into the history of settlement in the North, that it relied on slave labour, castoral systems and military deployments. And in many ways it still does. And yet when I suggested that Darwin was a garrison town, people were astonished at this description. I mean, this is a place that does not get to be rebuilt despite serial destructions, but for the constant assertion that it matters to national security interests that it exists at all, being in full denial of its own military identity. So I was curious, how did that happen? And once I started investigating, you can see that in fact it's not hidden at all, but loudly celebrated with a dedicated military museum and proud ownership of being bombed by the Japanese in Australia's Pearl Harbour moment. And how those hyper-celebrations are techniques for obscuring multiple other dimensions of the militarised affordances in our life worlds. So you can be in a situation where you're seeing and hearing the training exercises as fighter aircraft enjoy the largest aerial defence territory in the world and not see the militarised underpinnings behind Santos, Glencore, Rio Tinto and ERA's continued extractions. We can be proud of our men and women being deployed, especially when it comes to humanitarian rescues after tsunamis or fires or floods, but also with any death, and not see the relation between having land available for defence training in the current moment and the militarised civil wars that took place inside Australia in previous times, or we don't see the connection between military techniques and carceral logics, which cruels so many Indigenous lives in the present moment. And we don't ever get to think about, well, how do we have private property in the first place? Yeah, so while we're here, it's interesting also for me because Sydney Harbour um, was a place where two Japanese submarines came. But in the same war, my hometown of Darwin was bombed. And it's a Darwin man who was most recently the CEO of Dow Chemicals, uh, Michael Liveris, famously. So there's interconnections in multiple ways at that level. But what we're also able to see are two Navy ships that are just sitting benignly in the harbour. Um, and that reminds us too of how the military is posed as part of the ecocide that the world is experiencing, 
but also sometimes part of the framing in a solution. Less for the environment and more for people. But it's interesting to think about how can that be done for the environment, not just for people. The humanitarian response um, is emblemised here by a container ship which has actually got Australian aid written in blazed letters across it. Right, so in Australia this past summer we've experienced what have often been called unprecedented catastrophic bushfires. We know that these bushfires are related to climate change and we know that the military is one of the biggest polluters and emitters of carbon. You know, that is speeding up climate change. So on the one hand, we get the military as a perpetrator, as, a, as, as deeply complicit in these bushfires. On the other hand, we see these Navy ships about to sail down to Malakuta, or as they did, you know, over the Christmas and New Year's, to rescue people from the very climate catastrophe that they have created. We all live within a militarized existence for better or worse. And naming that with a concept like everyday militarisms helps us analyze the effects of militarism. So when we're standing, you know, on the edge of Sydney Harbor, looking out at those Navy ships, you know, those are most often, if anything, treated as tourist attractions. This is a heavily touristed area. People from all over the world come to marvel at Sydney Harbor and they see these Navy ships probably in an unconscious way as an emblem of the nation, right? What's really interesting is from this very place, the government of Australia finally, in the face of these catastrophic bushfires that we've been experiencing this summer, they finally deployed one of those ships to go down and evacuate people from the south coast of, of New South Wales. And this is really interesting because it's a way for the state again to say not only are militarisms necessary right to, to fight wars or to defend our nation but they're also amazingly good they can do these great benevolent things like rescuing people from bushfire and I think this is really interesting because one I think quite logically it points to the fact that militarisms aren't always bad not everything that the military does or has invented or has come up with is bad for us I would never say that it was a bad thing to go and evacuate people. But in a way, this comes to serve as also an alibi, right? It shores up again. The military is something that's inscrutable, impossible to probe or analyze or critique from any other way, even as it enters into these very intimate aspects of our life, you know, life and death in the face of bushfire. So on the one hand, it once again reinforces the the militaristic machine as a sort of masculinist hero narrative attached to the, the story of you know Australia. But it also provides a way of sort of shielding the kind of critique that we're trying to open up with the concept of everyday militarisms. Everyday militarisms is necessary and valuable because it allows us to say, yes, that was amazing that that Navy ship was deployed to evacuate those people. We needed, we needed that ship to do that, but also, but also, but also. That's the analytic that everyday militarism allows us to get into. One thing 
that's in the news a lot right now um, is you know, pollution, environmental destruction, devastation. Everyday militarism can help us make connections between things that we usually understand as separate. Everyday militarism allows us to draw connections between indigenous welfare policy on the one hand and defense policy on the other. Or we can track the connections between something like manufacturing chemical weapons and manufacturing domestic household pro products. We often don't think or we don't think about the fact that the same chemicals that are polluting our waterways right now, like Sydney Harbour, have a direct lineage back to the manufacture of military weaponized chemical agents in the Vietnam War and before. In Sydney, for example, the same Union Carbide factory, um, which then became known as Dow Chemical, uh, was responsible for manufacturing Agent Orange. But that same factory, like those same workers, that same place was also where workers in Sydney developed Glad Wrap, that plastic film that you use to pack your sandwich in. So by thinking through everyday militarisms, we can draw a suture between these two things that we treat as separate. Making these connections means that we can also challenge and resist some of the ways in which militarism structures our everyday lives. But once we make these connections, we also have to reckon with all the ways in which we also use militarisms in our lives, in our everyday life, sometimes like quite happily and quite joyfully. I think one thing that we have to think about then and what the concept of everyday militarisms forces us to look at is the way that we benefit from militarisms as well. So everyday militarisms as a way of looking at the world helps us analyze the everydayness and everywhereness of these technologies at the same time as we see how they structure our lives sometimes for good. So some people might call this a kind of hypocrisy or what we could call a cognitive dissonance, as in, how can you be critical of militarization when you also use a cell phone or when you travel by plane or when you agree to certain kinds of medical treatments? But one of the key points of our concept is that it rejects this possibility of purity. It rejects the idea that there is some pure stance, some pure place of denunciation where it would be possible to stand completely outside of militarism or say that is something that I'm categorically against or apart from. It just isn't possible. But what are we going to do about that? How can we recognize that and also resist it? What kinds of politics do we need to develop that work from within these kinds of complicities instead of pretending that we're somehow above them? Everyday militarism's refuses this all or nothing kind of stance. It refuses us to fall into that pattern of you're with us or against us as a kind of politics. But that doesn't mean that the intrusion of military ways of life into our everyday existence is something we should just happily or simply accept. I think that the concept also forces us to reckon with some uncomfortable realities. You know, we're not always very good at seeing how we are complicit in the very things that we criticize. But it also gives us the opportunity to ask, like, how can I work towards change from within this place of complicity? What am I willing to give up? 
what do I have to learn to live with and what can I change? And I think this is a different kind of politics. Understanding the ways in which militarism is pervasive in our everyday lives also, and you know, maybe counterintuitively, it lets us recognize um, some of the ways in which our everyday lives are always also in excess of militarism. To say that we also live in excess of militarisms means that there are always aspects of life that escape total subsumption by the war machine. So even as we are always within it, there are glimpses, there are opportunities, there are experiences or sensations or feelings that also exceed that militaristic machine. And I think the hard thing is to grasp that we live both of these situations always at the same time. There is no war and not war. The idea of everyday militarisms works to uncontain war, if we could say that. It shows us that militarism isn't a thing, but a set of relations that tether all kinds of different things together. And in this way, we are always both implicated by it, but moving beyond it as well. So this is about recognizing the ways that we are complicit in and how we benefit from military technologies or knowledges. But importantly, it's also about finding ways to use the very products and logics of militarism against or in resistance to militarized ways of being um, as a way of revealing the impact of militarism on our daily lives. So by naming this thing, everyday militarisms, we can also engage with it creatively. So, you know, even making this podcast, right, we can use the R&D of the military in order to crack it open and see what else we might find there. When we're standing at the edge of the harbor, we can lower in a hydrophone. We can use sort of, again, sonic technologies born out of military R&D to listen to the click, 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 clacking of the mollusks or the shrimp. And thus, you know, we can use these same technologies to draw us into new and wondrous relationships with entirely other worlds. So everyday militarisms, paradoxically, can help us bring other ways of living beyond a militarized existence into visibility. There are many First Nations people across the planet who, who will tell you the same thing. The water has a life. It has an entity. It has spirits in it. You've heard of water spirits? Yes, I have. They are there. We're being reminded literally right now that this world can live independently of humans and it can push us off its surface, it can shake us off. I'm just wondering if the bushfires are the first of that as the water laps at our feet. So as we sit here and the waves are coming in and our sneakers are getting a bit soaked, I'm thinking about what Uncle Jimmy said, right? The water is still alive. Even amidst this omnipresent militarism, this militarism that is everywhere and shapes everything about our everyday lives, there are still other kinds of life in excess of those militarisms. Let's hope. <laughs>